Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Rick's World Podcast. Hope you liked the new intro, which was created by singer-songwriter Lorcan Bones. This is part two of our Canada podcast, and once again, I'm proud to be joined by Dale McDermott, who is head of Canada's LGBT Plus Chamber of Commerce. This week, we will discuss Canada's drug policies, gun policies, and some quirks to Canada's culture. So let's start off with the good stuff. I'm talking about drugs, but no, no, in, in, in all seriousness, how has the legalization of Canada, as well as the decriminalization of some harder drugs, affected overall drug taking in Canada? Yeah, so, you know, on October 17th, uh, 2018, that was the day that weed became legalized in Canada. But of course, remember, the big weed day uh, is, of course, uh, April uh, 20th, 420, and for those who are culturally in the know. But, you know, like, I think what you've seen here actually is is a real uh, reckoning in terms of drug policy here in Canada. And I think in the end will happen across the world. In terms of the, you know, institutions' viewpoints on uh, on marijuana and on drugs, first of all, it's now a multi-billion dollar industry. You know, you have uh, very, what were traditionally conservative firms in corporate Canada now engaging in this space. There's a lot more acceptance, a lot more tolerance, and then end of the day, it's led to a lot of jobs and economic prosperity for, uh, I think, both, you know, across across Canada, but also rural, where, you know, weed would be grown. But I think what's actually really interesting is the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. So this is the association which uh, represents the leaders of law enforcement across Canada. They actually have formally taken a policy stance to decriminalize all drugs. Yes. Um, so the, the, the law enforcement leadership in, in Canada now believes that, it, that we need to move to a position where drugs of any kind that are used for personal use uh, should be decriminalized, which I think is something which, you know, I don't think we'd ever hear from police leadership, uh, which I think, you know, people probably think would be a lot more conservative and would perhaps need to be convinced on the issue. But here we have the justice system and the uh, police system actually being quite progressive and quite ahead uh, of the political um, situation that presently exists. So, you know, I, I think to really answer your question, you know, Canada's seen a real maturity on this issue coming to fruition, a lot of prosperity as a result of that, and it's now leading to a lot more of a compassionate and understanding agenda when it comes to drug policy here in Canada. I suppose just, just do, you, do you have maybe any kind of a statistics or that in terms of has, has rates of, say, use of cocaine or heroin have those rates gone up much or have they kind of stayed steady or maybe even fallen if kind of more money's gone towards treatments or do you have any kind of statistics on how that's that's come about overall no stats to hand but i i do know that drug use people are trying to link um drug use or hard drug use to marijuana being legalized uh, all the data says that that's wrong if you look at for example even in portugal when portugal did a similar thing in terms of decriminalizing all drugs drug use actually fell. And what also fell was, and this is a big impact on health, uh, was HIV diagnosis. Because, you know, people were, it was a lot less underground. Uh, If people wanted to, you know, engage in certain activities, they could do so safely and above ground and, uh, in effect, took a bit of shame away from it. So 
people should not take the message that by legalizing marijuana, you're going to have an influx of higher rates of cocaine use, higher rates of heroin use or whatever. That's just not the case. Okay. So now I'm actually going to go change on to a different subject. Gun ownership has been in the news lots this year, and President Biden has stated that his intention is to ban assault rifles. Canada has the seventh highest gun ownership rate in the world, according to the Small Arms Survey. Yet it has fewer mass shootings in countries such as France, Finland, or the Netherlands, which all have much lower gun ownership rates. Why do you think this is? But I really think it's down to culture. Canada doesn't have, one, the constitutional obsession with you know, the right to own a gun and the right to bear arms. And I think then that, you know, by not having that, that cultural view permeate into the national psyche, the need to want to own a gun, be involved with guns, to, you know, I, I just think is not there. What you do find is that, you know, gun ownership is, is largely focused on, uh, you know, northern territories and uh, indigenous cultures and hunting and, you know, what guns should be used for, <laughs> you know, and not focused on the personal protection agenda, which I know is very, very prevalent in the United States. So, you know, our gun ownership, I think, is very much, you know, toe-for-toe with lots of other countries. And I think that our culture just has resisted the need. And I think it's actually one of the things, actually, that I I mentioned before about how the Canadian political system, you know, really draws its inspiration from the UK. But politically, though, like, it actually you know, people generally vote for a party leader here. So let's say if you're in a local constituency, you aren't going to vote for, or generally you aren't voting for your local MP, you're voting, like you're voting for Justin Trudeau or you're voting for uh, and, uh, um, Aaron O'Toole, who's a conservative party leader. Because we draw, I think, the, the presidential inspiration from the US. What I think we haven't imported uh, into, Canadians, into Canadian life is the obsession with gun ownership. And I think that's for the better. Yeah. Um, so actually, just as you mentioned, um, so actually you mentioned earlier, obviously, Justin Trudeau being very pro-multiculturalism, uh, et cetera. So how has, has Canada's, um, I believe, yeah, has high rates of immigration, has there been kind of specific plans to integrate people who come over to Canada? Just, I suppose, speaking from experience, I'll probably get into other I lived in Austria for a year and there's a huge Turkish Turkish diaspora within Austria. And from my dealings there, I think the local Austrians, they were they they originally saw these Turkish people as guest workers. And so I would say there was never a a major effort to actually integrate them. There was at the start they just felt that they'd probably go back to Turkey in ten years or so. But that when that never happened Although there's never there's never quite been anything that bad happened between the different sets, I would say there is kind of a definitely a cultural anxiety between the Turkish and Austrian communities in Austria. It has Canada kind of has it got a specific plan maybe to how to integrate people from different cultures or how has its experience been in I suppose either with statistics or just I suppose it's the fact you migrated to Canada, how did you find it yourself? But Obviously, you are white, so that might be different to, to people coming from Asia or Africa. I know it's a long-winded question, but I hope you can answer No, uh, I, I think it's a great question. And yes, listeners will know uh, I am an Irish person speaking about Canadian politics, but I, I, I emigrated here, you know, 
four and a half years ago. My uh, lived experience, having gone through this myself, and I'm having lots of friends who've gone through this themselves too, of all you know, race and creeds and backgrounds, is that you know, Canadian life and Canadian culture is extremely welcoming of, uh, of, um, of different cultures and, 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 and different communities. And I'll tell you how. Um, so Toronto is a city I'm living in now. So it's the most populous city here in Canada. It's a population of, you know, the greater Toronto uh, region has 8 million people, larger than Chicago. A majority of the people who live in the city were not born here. Um, so majority of people in the city are immigrants to this country. And that's a fascinating statistic because it speaks to the rich and cultural diversity that lives and breathes in the Canadian uh, maple leaf fabric. And I think, you know, when you look at the systemic uh, nature of uh, Canadian life and immigration, you know, you reference Austria and the need there where uh, people would view these people as being temporary. And there's not really a, a motivation to, you know, get them involved in Canadian society. Well, you know, I can tell you, you know, I lived in Canada for one year and I was able to apply to become a permanent resident. Uh, you know, name me another country in the world that uh, is that open and welcoming uh, from a, a system perspective to immigrants being able to, to become a permanent resident. Uh, and, you know, with, and, and it's hard to explain for, you know, people who, who, who aren't immigrated, but when, when, when you have certainty in your status in a country, what that does is that allows you to plant roots, that allows you to integrate into the fabric of that country and then partake in society in a much more, you know, fulfilling and, and, and in-depth way. I mentioned them here four and a half years now. I'm about to apply to become a citizen, which is, again, name another country that allows people who have absolutely no ties to Canada prior to moving here four, four and a half years ago where they can become a citizen in, in pretty much short order. So I think by having system, um, systematic configured policies that are welcoming to immigrants like that, that remove the barriers and that make it as, as easy as possible for people, for people to move, integrate and do well, that's how you have a successful immigration policy that allows people to reach their full potential and, in, and integrate uh, as to the point of your question. Is there, is there any even maybe more localized versions like when you go over, is there anything like telling you to maybe go to hockey games or go to certain other Canada cultural events? Like, I, I, j just my own perspective, I think probably here with things like the GAA and Irish dancing, it's probably going to have to be huge outreach to uh, different migrants coming from Eastern Europe and Africa and Asia in the future, kind of to integrate them into society. But did is there anything kind of specific like that? to Canada? Yeah, so um, IRCC, um, which is the department, uh, and I always get the acronym wrong, it's Immigration, Refugees, something Canada. <laughs> it's okay. a department. Okay. Um, so I got three out of four right, that's okay, I think. <laughs> that's the department that's responsible for immigration in Canada, and they put, on, they put on lots of programs to work to integrate different cultures into the Canadian fabric. Of course, you have the citizenship test as well, which will test your knowledge and will test my knowledge uh, on, on, on the Canadian system and Canadian cultural values. But I think one of the other interesting points is that this is a country of immigrants, and with that means that 
you know, anyone who comes to this country from any country in the world, they'll already find a localized community here. If I look at myself here as an Irish person, when I landed, I immediately connected with the local Irish community here in, in Toronto and Canada. And what that allows you to do then is that you can still have your local, you know, your, your indigenous cultural identity and you can still celebrate it. But that also allows you then to have a little bit of a landing, a landing point where you can then expand that, that reach to, you know, other Canadian um, cultures, but also other, um, other cultural uh, identities here in Canada as well. So I think it's a mix of the formal programs, if you will, but also just the fact that it's a country of immigrants and everyone, you know, like, it's also a really young country. This, this is the other thing. Canada is 153 or four years old. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, people in, in Ireland are property <laughs> older than that, you know. So it, it's um, Canadian history, of course, is also quite short, too, which is important to remember. Yeah, no, that's, that's all interesting stuff. Um, so, yeah, so tell me a bit about your, your own job, your, your chief coordinating officer for Canada LGBT+. Plus. So tell me a bit about what your organization does. And Yeah, so, so I'm, um, I'm chief operating officer of CGLCC. So we're Canada's LGBT plus Chamber of Commerce, which is a unique concept, I think, for listeners. But, you know, what the mandate of our organization is, it's really to connect LGBT owned businesses and entrepreneurs uh, with each other, with, with corporate Canada, uh, with the government. And it's all about, you know, economically empowering this section of society. So we're like any chamber of commerce. We, we represent our members. Our members in this case are LGBT uh, entrepreneurs uh, and business owners. I think just a few, fa- a few stats to kind of roll off, just to give your listeners a bit of an understanding of the impact of, uh, of that community and, you know, in Canada, there's over 28,000 LGBT-owned businesses across the country. They generate around $22 billion in gross corporate revenue, and they employ, you know, around half a million full-time and part-time Canadian jobs. So it's a sizable part of the economy. Yep. They also face some unique challenges, and this is kind of what it speaks to the need for an organization or a distinct chamber of commerce like ours. So sadly, we know that you know, first of all, one and two are, first of all, afraid to come out to their customers and their clients. We know that one and three believe that they've lost sales and contracts and business opportunities because of how they identify. And sadly, we know that around three in 10 have faced direct discrimination because of their identity. So, you know, those are some unique challenges. And those are unique challenges on top of you know, the broad swathe of challenges that are already facing entrepreneurs across the length and breadth of the country and also in, in Ireland too. So, so what we do is we work to connect these businesses through our programs, through Corporate Canada, um, through uh, programs like Supplier Diversity, which uh, I think is a whole topic in its own right, which would deserve its own episode, I think. But we, we basically work to economically empower this community, work through those unique challenges represent them and advocate on behalf of them to corporate and government industries and all in all it's about setting up the future of our economy for success no that that sounds like really great work um when the more you talk about it there kind of reminded me of either a trade union or co-op group in terms of uh you know being part of society but then 
just needing a bit more kind of bulk power, a bit more group group negotiation factors to actually to bring things to light and to to be able to actually have strength in numbers when when discrimination does happen. Yeah, like like the the thing to remember is you know, and I look at this you know largely from an economic perspective is that you know those unique challenges they are lim- like limiting factors on economic potential. So I listed off you know some big numbers there: twenty eight thousand businesses, half a million people employed, twenty eight billion dollar, uh, uh, twenty two billion dollars in in revenue. That could be so much more if that potential wasn't being stemmed by discrimination. So our belief is that you know it's our job to work through those challenges and help support the, these entrepreneurs and get them reaching their potential uh, so the country can reach its potential. Very good. Um, sorry to, to circle back to something I just kind of came to me there. Yeah. You mentioned um, uh, Native Canadians, or I'm not sure what's the... Indigenous. Indigenous, indigenous Canadians. Um, I actually, I traveled to Alaska a couple of years ago. And, cool. And yeah, and it was a very unique place. Um, but yes, they had numerous different tribes in terms of uh, native Alaskans and uh, they, they definitely did set up a lot of heritage centers etc but it seemed like a, a real struggle to kind of keep their languages alive and so on and obviously we talked a bit about the, the French and English and kind of bilingual nature has has there been much in terms of setup in terms to protect uh, indigenous Canadians because Obviously, we, we, we spoke a lot about this in the Australian episode, and I'm sure it'll be a topic in other episodes, but what, what sort of specific things does do the Canadian constitution or government do to protect those often very vulnerable parts of society? So the, the first thing to say is that the, the Indigenous peoples of Canada have faced you know, such systemic abuse, quite frankly, since the foundation of the country, subject to policies which are, are abhorrent, quite similar to, the, to to Australia's experience, as I'm sure you have, have explored in one of your previous episodes. And I think the same story really applies here in Canada. Not so long ago, there were policies still in place. Residential schools were the last residential school in Canada only closed in 1996, which is not that long ago. Sorry, can you explain what residential school is? Yeah, so residential school was, you know, basically forced educational institution on Indigenous peoples to, in many ways, get them to integrate, uh, to borrow a previous phase, into, into Canadian culture and Canadian society. And, you know, it was, these are institutions and schools where lots of um, abuse took place, sexual, physical, mental, you know, not dissimilar to the, the abuse situation in Ireland, um, which, you know, many of these state institutions and religious institutions pose on people. And, you know, what this was, has resulted in uh, after generations of policy, which has been you know, to the detriment of Indigenous peoples is, you know, you have a lot of Indigenous people now who are, have been subjected to, you know, bad policy. And this has led to intergenerational challenges, both, you know, from a health perspective, addiction perspective, and uh, all of the challenges that those, those things bring. But the important thing that's happening now is truth and reconciliation is a term which is used a lot here in Canada because reconciliation is objective to move move the conversation forward and to give Indigenous peoples their 
rightful uh, place in Canadian society, giving them, you know, back access to their lands, to self-determination, to the various supports that they require and investments that they need, clean drink, basic things such as clean drinking water, which lots of reservations across the country just do not have access to, even to this day in 2021, in a G7 country. So, so really what's happening now is there's a really big focus on how do we, you know, be a lot more inclusive as a country, uh, recognize the diversity and the indigenous diversity, which, uh, you know, I spoke about how Canada is only, you know, 150 years old, but there were people, <laughs> people occupying these lands for a lot longer than that. And, you know, similar to, to, to lots of countries around the world that have indigenous populations, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the US, who experienced colonialism. And, and, I, and you know, I, I think it's interesting, actually, because as an Irish person, I actually do understand it. We in Ireland, of course, have, have been subjected to colonialism as, ourselves through, you know, the British occupation uh, in Ireland, the various challenges structurally and institutionally that, that, that's brought our people, you know, for generations. That is a, sh- a similar a shared experience that we have with Indigenous peoples across the world. And having been here for, you know, for four and a half years, I've, I've used a lot, a lot of my time to meet Indigenous peoples, learn about their culture, learn about the challenges. I've traveled to uh, Inuvik, which is in the Arctic, Cir- uh, it's in the Arctic Circle in the Northwest Territories. Even above Alaska, and 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 uh, I, I you know, you fell off the earth at that point. I, I I nearly did, uh, but it's a be- beautiful place, and yeah. you know, just very interesting to kind of you know be there and, and learn and understand a lot more about indigenous people and cultures. So you know, it's a re- it's a really big topic. It, it's one which there's so much history to explore and and uh, and go through. But I think the the key message for your listeners here today is that reconciliation is very much on the agenda and what that looks like I think will be very interesting over the next five to ten years. Yes it's a fascinating topic and one that I might dedicate a full episode to sometime in the future with natives from countries such as America, Canada or Australia. Finally I was just going to ask you Drake, Justin Bieber, Nickelback, Canada seems to produce artists who you kind of love but kind of hate all at the same time. Um, have you any idea why this keeps happening? Well, first of all, I, I, I reject the premise of your question. Uh, I love Justin Bieber. Uh, how dare you? Uh, and, and, I, and I do think Nickelback gets a very hard time. Uh, that's not as justified as it should be. But, you know, I think Canada, you know, even in the last 10 years has produced some really great artists. And I think there's a few reasons for that. I think one, I think the Canadian system, actually, actually I think, first of all, it's down to our multiculturalism. You know, we've got so many different uh, cultures and, and, you know, uh, types of music and, you know, all of that creates an ecosystem which is very, you know, it, it kind of basically produces great creative content, I think, uh, which, you know, has shown in, you know, the likes of uh, Drake, The Weeknd, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think the Canadian system is actually quite supportive of, of artists. You know, there's a lot of supports, I think, for artists looking to start out and explore their creative content. There's great schools here, you know, and, and that 
you know, goes across industries from music to comedy to, to television and, and, and film. And then we're also seeing a lot of investment in Canada. We're seeing a lot of investment from the US, especially with, with Netflix and film productions taking place here in Canada uh, and, and setting up operations here in Canada. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of potential here. You know, for, for, for example, I often find I'm walking down the street and uh, I'll see a bunch of, a row of New York taxis on the street and I realize that the city is being filmed to look like New York. And of course, listeners will be well familiar with the TV show Suits. And of course, that was a a show that was filmed uh, right here in Toronto as well. Um, So I think, you know, the creative film, music and television uh, industry here in Canada is growing significantly. And I think uh, all for the better. Very good. Yeah. No, and the, the Toronto Raptors have been very successful in the last couple of years as well. That's right. Yes, it's uh, well. Well, I think that that's certainly one way to get a lot, a lot of people uh, very much focused on Canadian culture is when the team actually wins. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I've I watched plenty of the games. I think Drake buys the the courtside tickets, and I think half the time he does playing in the game. Yes, um, yes, he's he, he, he's their extra player. I think. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, uh, Dale McDermott. Once again, you've you've been a wealth in all things to do with Canada. I hope our listeners know a lot more now. I certainly know a lot more. Uh, looking forward to to seeing you in a couple of weeks, everybody. See you then, Dale. Thank you so much. So, plenty of thoughts about Canada since recording this interview. I read a report on CBC News that Immigration Minister Ahmed Hussein was saying that more is needed to be done in way of integration, or a backlash may be only a matter of time. I suppose integration and immigration will probably be a big part of this podcast series, as uh, I speak about it again plenty in the upcoming episode about Swedish politics. To me, it's quite clear that economically speaking, immigrants are a good thing. Whether it's Australia, Canada, the US, or even countries like the UAE, immigrants come and they are nearly always the hardest working people as they have to earn a living and make a new life for themselves. Those old arguments about them using a lot of services and stuff never seem to, I'd say, even come close to uh, being true compared to the amount of work immigrants do in a new society. Culturally is where issues normally start as things like religion or norms of behavior usually bump up against each other. But as Dale said and what I see when I look at the multi-ethnic team and multi-ethnic fans of the Toronto Raptors or the multi-ethnic music scene which we talked about as well, This all shows that Canada does seem to be creating a successful, open-minded and tolerant society and democracy. The fact that Canada started as a country which needed to incorporate both French and English speakers may have given it an advantage in bringing on board new cultures as the country never saw itself as fully homogeneous in the first place. I thought Dale made another very interesting point earlier on when he was talking about the Irish diaspora in Canada in which like you know you get to meet up with the local Irish people and they kind of in- introduce you to local way of Canada life and stuff. So I thought that was interesting in terms of a book that I read a few years ago which was a uh, Neil Ferguson's biography of Henry Kissinger. The book kind of accidentally looks into integration as it goes through Kissinger's early life as a German Jewish boy and how much everything changed naturally when the Nazis came to power. 
So him and his parents had to basically flee to New York. But yeah, when they got there, it kind of tells a lot about integration in terms of how basically it was the local Jewish diaspora, which helped him and his family kind of make a new life and how difficult it was to get accustomed to things, but how they kind of did need the other local Jewish people basically to help them get started. So this is not really a unique tale to just Henry Kissinger as nearly any Irish person, as Dale said, when he went to Canada, other Irish people helped them. I remember one of uh, a roommate I had from Kosovo when I lived in Austria talked about the, the close uh, Kosovar diaspora in Austria. So this is quite a common case across pretty much as I can see all cultures and societies when they move away from home. The curious case is when that person goes from seeing themselves as an Irish or a Russian or an Albanian to instead seeing themselves as a Canadian or an Australian or a Brazilian or whatever. It seems to be an inexact science, but it's it's a question I'm definitely going to explore more. And Canada is clearly doing it well, so we might revisit that topic at some point, maybe in comparison to other countries. But anyway, I'll leave it there so, and I will see you in two weeks when we'll be talking about Sweden. And always remember, it's better to know more about the world.